You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 30th of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, US President Donald Trump complains that online platforms are suppressing all the stories about what a fantastic job he's doing, which is surely the only possible reason why no such things are coming up when he searches his own name. My guests Juliet Foster and Peter Goodman will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the ongoing redrawing of NAFTA, the tarnishing of Aung San Suu Kyi's Nobel Peace Prize, and the somewhat surprising place where English is about to become an official language. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Juliet Foster, the journalist and broadcaster, and Peter Goodman, global economic correspondent for the New York Times. Welcome both. And we will start in the United States, where President Donald Trump has been fulminating against the media again. This is no more or less tedious or undignified than usual, but the president has at least varied the range of his targets to include fake books, and he should know he's written a few, and such tech giants and or new media platforms as Facebook, Google and Twitter. Twitter. This latter preoccupation seems to be the result of a recent bout of seething pre-dawn self-searching, and let he who has not cast the first stone, which returned results that displeased Trump, presumably those suggesting that the White House contains potted plants which would make better presidents. Um, Juliet, first of all, is it clear, and this is always a key question where Trump is concerned, that he actually understands how anything actually works, in this particular instance, search engines? <laughs> You don't make it easy for me, do you? <laughs> um, well, you, you do actually raise an interesting point because I think that um, the bosses of Facebook and Twitter and Google, they're going before Congress, I think, either next week or the week after, whatever. And the reason why I refer to that is because Mark Zuckerberg went before Congress when you had the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal which broke. And what arose from that was the fact that his interrogators didn't actually know much about Facebook. And of course, he sat there smirking. So I would imagine we're going to get pretty much the same thing um, when this trio go before Congress. But I also think it's symptomatic of something much larger that you're right, that the president doesn't actually understand how these things work, or rather he understands them selectively, in other words, when it suits him. And I find it ironic that he's actually picking on Twitter. I'm not a defender of Twitter, but of course, he has weaponized Twitter. He has used it as his way of bullying people, slagging people off in some way, shape or form, because he doesn't particularly like them. But the only reason that he's actually lashing out, I guess, and because I'm, I'm being very cynical here, is maybe because he's trying to stop this so-called blue wave in November, of course, the midterms, if it does materialise. And um, what better way to actually rally the base by picking on the fake news media, or rather the younger relative of the fake news media, the likes of Twitter, all these various platforms, etc. And it is rather infantile, isn't it? I mean, it, it will, as you suggest, doubtless play well with his base. But um, again, it's always, a, it's always a fun question to apply uh, to anything Donald Trump says. Um, 
Is it possible he's right? I mean, just for fun, let's ha- let, let's amuse ourselves with this. Is there any plausible evidence at all for his allegations that media platforms such as Google are biased against him? There, there's no evidence that that's he's always correct. the answer. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is the internet. It's got everything in there somewhere. There's lots of algorithms trying to fish it out, depending upon who you are and what tribe you see yourself as part of. But I do think, though, rather than simply dismiss this as Trump, there he goes again. He doesn't understand the plumbing of the internet, and he's just uh, a creature of vanity and and frustration. I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. He's a reality television star at heart. He understands that if you're not attacking, then you're probably being attacked. But I do think there's a larger objective here that he is serving, and that is to diminish all of the various scandals that are now uh, knocking uh, at his doorstep. Mm. Uh, He's seen, you know, his former campaign manager convicted of bank and tax fraud while doing business with some very bad people, some of them in Russia, uh, where, of course, we are still uh, trying to figure out uh, whether there was collusion with the foreign power to help bring Donald Trump to the White House. And in complaining about not only the mainstream media, but now social media, Trump is essentially trying to generate confusion in the information marketplace and exhaust people and reduce everything to, oh, there's another partisan food fight where liberals and conservatives, Republicans Mm. and Democrats are going at one another so that when the various investigations that are that are pointing at him uh, deliver final fruit. He will hope that his base is so exhausted by all these charges that they just see it as more of the same. Uh, Juliet, there is some fun to be had with the the psychological subtexts, I think, of some of his recent outbursts. I, I mentioned in the introduction that he was banging on about fake books, which I assume is a reference to uh, Bob Woodward's imminent fear. Uh, as the yeah. title, which I don't think is going to be an encomium to Trump's sagacity. Yeah. But it's also interesting that of all the other people he could have targeted in the entire media landscape this week, he picked on someone who he described as a man who thinks like a degenerate fool making up story after story being well, laughed at. He could have been describing himself well, in that in, mood, he couldn't. He? Indeed, but the person he was describing was Carl Bernstein. Now, of all the people he would be picking on, why would Woodward and Bernstein be Oh, come be, on, be Woodward lurking? and Bernstein, the men who expose Watergate. I mean, look, come on... <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he doesn't make it difficult, does he? No, he doesn't make it difficult. And I mean, look, clearly there must have been, there must be something in that book unless he's got an advanced copy of the proofs or something, which he can't just brush away. We're not talking about something which was written by Amarusa or was written by James Comey. In other words, people who were directly connected to him. They were on the payroll. They were at part of that centre. Well, certainly, at, well, in the case of James Comey, he was running the FBI. Amarusa, she had been his soulmate, so to speak, for what, over 10 years or or something. They were very close friends, and of course, she then sticks a knife in his back. So you've got uh, you've got uh, the, the journalist who is completely detached from this is just looking at the cold, hard facts. And because of his reputation, he can get people to talk to him. Perhaps they know that if he says, "I'm not going to name my sources," he's going to protect them, and they are kosher. So not to be not to be trifled with. Look, this is this is just Trump playing games as per usual. But you know what? It's going to guarantee more book sales. Amarusa's book has done incredibly well because of the, the noise surrounding it and not necessarily from her, from him. 
Every writer and journalist in the world, I am sure, and I number myself among them, dreams of being rage tweeted by Donald Trump. Absolutely, it, 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 it would it would be it would be a lot. Well, it's win. the ultimate pension, isn't it? At that, a time it, when pensions are being squeezed, <laughs> you know, just write a book about Donald Trump and have him rail against it. It's going to sell very well. Um, just as a final thought on this, uh, and possibly more soberly, uh, do we need to worry about real world consequences of Trump's railing against the media? And I, I ask because uh, today a man in California has been charged with with making threatening calls to the Boston Globe, threats that the police have taken extremely seriously, uh, and among the epithets uh, that he hurled at anybody who answered his calls was enemies of the people. We definitely need to worry. Uh, First of all, Trump has incited violence against journalists. There is no question that uh, people are under attack, particularly women, particularly people of color, but all journalists are targets of, of this wrath. Uh, and uh, Trump is is stoking that wrath uh, very much so. More broadly, we have to worry that there is a generalized war on reality. There, I mean, George W. Bush gave us the war on science. Mm. Trump has brought us the war on facts. And in the case of of these social media platforms, he's found some uh, potentially fruitful adversaries because, you know, he can rail about the failing New York Times or the the, uh, Amazon allusion to Jeff Bezos-owned Washington Post. I mean, they're not going to back down. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to continue to do what we do. We're going to report. We're going to go after the fact pattern. And and we're not going to be intimidated uh, by a, a president who's calling us the enemy of the people. But, you know, Google... Facebook, Apple, these are tech platforms. They're answerable to shareholders. They are, they're trying to make their stock mm. prices go up. And if they feel that they're uh, putting themselves in harm's way with advertisers or they're going to alienate a, a swath of, of the readership, even though they are enormously important conduits for information and journalism, uh, you can bet that they may be inclined to tweak their algorithms or see what they can do to, you know, maybe not get hauled in front of another congressional mm. panel. Which is something they, they said they were trying to protect the algorithms. They didn't want them out there so that all and sundry could potentially I mean, these are not them. journalists. They don't operate by journalistic values. Hmm. Okay, well, let's look now at other fruits of a busy week for Donald Trump. His bearing down on another of his bets noir, this being the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, with which Trump has long been unhappy. Earlier this week, he announced its replacement with something he wanted to call the US-Mexico Free Trade Agreement, or presumably USMFTA. The acronym may need work. This came as something of a surprise to Canada, NAFTA's other signatory, who have since been continuing negotiations. Uh, Peter Goodman, you are, it says here, the global economic (laughs) correspondent of the New York Times. It therefore falls to you to explain what actual difference is this going to make to anything? Huh. Well, uh, I'm going to weasel out of that important question by saying, I mean, until we see the final text, we really don't know. There's so many variables here. First of all, is Canada going to quickly rush and do a deal and assent to these terms that the U.S. has struck with Mexico as a way to put pressure on Canada? We don't know. Looks that way at the moment. If that doesn't happen and it's just a bilateral deal between the U.S. and Mexico, it's not at all clear that it it can even legally uh, get congressional passage in the Mm -hmm. United States. It's not going to get a vote until after the mid term elections in the U.S., if the Democrats uh, take the House of Representatives, as is now generally expected, there's a good chance that Democrats are just not going to vote for any trade deal, and especially not one uh, negotiated by the Trump administration. Now, if we look at the terms of the deal struck, there's some interesting stuff here. There are 
so-called rules of origin. Uh, this is an important term of art in trade deals. What percentage of the product that's being sold without tariff in this big area, the North American free trade area, qualifies for tariff-free status? What, what percentage of that product has to be made of other stuff made within that area? For cars, which is where the action really is, it used to be 62.5%. That goes up to 75% now. That's an attempt to prevent uh, Chinese auto parts, Eastern European auto parts from being shipped to Mexico, put into cars, and sold very cheaply to Americans. And the idea is you force some of that business back to American factories. There's also, interestingly, and this could potentially win some Democratic support and some labor support, a provision that says 40 to 45 percent of the value of a car sold in the, in, uh, within the free trade area has to be uh, built by people who make at least 16 U.S. dollars an hour. So, you know, other things being equal, and there are, again, a lot of other variables here, that could potentially increase wages not only for Americans, but Canadians, but also Mexican auto workers. Uh, Juliet, leaving aside the deal itself, and as Peter points out, we don't yet quite know what shape or form it may take. Is there, do you think, a repeat of Trump's you know, familiar pattern here. He he makes the abrupt announcement out of the blue. So he, he he's doing that thing where he you know he creates a spurious crisis, announces a spurious solution, and then wanders off claiming credit to the mm. next thing. It's interesting you say that this was, there was a spurious crisis because we were actually talking about this before we came on air. Was NAFTA in crisis? NAFTA came into effect in 1994, and the objective was to create this trade block between the United States, Mexico, and Canada, the North American triumvirate. That but uh, at the time, it was mooted as, as the largest in the world. So really, since 1994, yes, it, it did have its flaws. And I mean, Peter's been in a better position to actually identify those flaws than I am. But on the whole, it seemed to be working. And you can't really escape the fact that um, Trump, I mean, everything is a bad deal. In, in, in the Trump universe, everything is a bad deal. And unless, I can up- unless he struck it, of Unless course. I struck it, of course. And I can upend it and do it better. So, yes, he was talking about let's let's make America great again. He was very clever in terms of his, his, his election strategy, going to the Rust Belt, all these areas where you actually found that a lot of the factories and manufacturers were closing down because at the end of the day, uh, they couldn't keep up with, with globalisation effectively. They saw themselves as the victims rather than the winner of, of this game where we were all supposed to, to get slices of the pie. So you can understand, certainly, um, why he would seek to manufacture a crisis and why he has to be seen to be able to deliver on it. So certainly the idea that you can actually have cars with the parts are made in America, more of them are made in America, and these vehicles are going out there in the marketplace and aren't we doing very well? Yeah, it sounds great on the surface, but my concern is that if you're actually going to raise the wages of workers and you're actually going to produce more of these goods in the United States, you're effectively going to raise the cost of production. That is inflationary, okay? And the car manufacturers, they may say, well, you know, paying $16 an hour or whatever the going rate is to the workers. Do you know what? Let's just take a one-off hit and automate the factory. So that way, it's a one-off cost, pleases the shareholders, because at the end of the day, it keeps the wage bill down. And are these cars going to be a bit more expensive? Well, if they are expensive in the United States because people don't want to pay the cost, maybe what we should do is go abroad and manufacture them elsewhere outside the United States. So in that sense, what was this all about? I mean, Peter, looking at again through the the, the framework that Donald Trump seems to apply to every transaction he has ever participated in, he has this idea of commerce which 
runs sort of counter to the thinking of almost all economists that every deal has a winner and a loser. He has this incredibly zero-sum attitude right. to life, which is just not how the world works. Is is that what he's doing with NAFTA? Does he think in his head that he now is playing brilliantly playing Mexico and Canada off against each other? Yeah, I mean, I think zero-sum is the right frame. And, I mean, Trump has consistently looked at the U.S. trade deficit with various trading partners, Germany, uh, Mexico, China, of course, uh, as a sign that Americans are being ripped off. Uh, it's not that Americans are buying all these goods that are made in China that Americans actually want and that they're buying at a cheap price, <laughs> but that somehow we're being, you know, pilfered and 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 giving up, you know, half a trillion dollars a year. And but but I I mean I think that in terms of how we should view the the management of trade here. It, sorry to repeat myself, it's about the reality television show that mm. is the Trump presidency. And you know, in the same way that when Trump uh, calls a national security crisis, says, "Oh, Americans, national security is being threatened by the fact that we buy aluminum from Canada. I'm going to slap tariffs on Canadian aluminum." You know, you've jacked up the cost of metal in an economy where eight times as many people uh, go to factories that buy metals than mm. produce metals. But it's a really nice photo op to go out to a steel mill in Illinois or Indiana and pose with the grateful steel workers. He gets to put one of those hard hats on. Correct. Absolutely. Maybe he gets to ride on some vehicle. <laughs> sure. And, and, and the, turn the wheel and, and pretend it's moving. And the same the same is at issue in, in, in this auto deal. I mean, no, no question there are some auto workers cheering, but we don't really know what's going to happen. Mm. And let's not forget as well the impact on supply chains as well, because supply chains are extensive. And you're absolutely right. We don't know what's going to happen. What's going to happen to the supply chains? How much will it cost to reconfigure them? Well, we are going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Juliet Foster and Peter Goodman. Coming up next, is Aung San Suu Kyi going to have to rewrite her CV? Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip, our comprehensive travel guide series are packed with tips, essays, and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's travel guide series is published by Gestalten. We've recently added Mexico City and Zurich, Basel, and Geneva to the library, with Athens and Helsinki coming soon, and guides to Chicago and Hamburg following early next year. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Millister. With me are Juliet Foster and Peter Goodman. It's not an original observation that the Nobel Peace Prize has occasionally been un an unwisely traded hostage to fortune or a debatably deserved reward. The much-coveted gong has occasionally over the years been presented to some extremely rum customers, including the likes of Henry Kissinger and Yasser Arafat. The prize committee probably thought they'd made a safe choice back in 1991 when they garlanded Aung San Suu Kyi, then widely regarded as a a secular saint comparable to a Burmese Nelson Mandela. Now, her country's nominal head of government, Aung San Suu Kyi, has more recently been, at best, publicly indifferent to the sectarian rampage in Rakhine State conducted by Myanmar's military. There have been suggestions that she be stripped of the prize. Uh, Juliet, the suggestions are in themselves somewhat redundant, given that there isn't actually a mechanism for stripping anybody mm. of a Nobel Prize. That notwithstanding, if there was such a mechanism, should she be? 
good question to which I would have to say, well, what difference would it make? If you're very, very cynical, you could argue that um, the Nobel, the whole Nobel concept certainly this year has been demeaned because the committee has actually found itself in the middle of one of these um, sex, sexual harassment situations. Indeed it has. That's right. And of course, they're not, they, they're not holding the award this year and possibly even next year as well. But um, I'd have to ask myself, what difference would it make by stripping her of this? Because um, surely the damage has been done already by her behaviour. This doesn't confer any respectability to her. So in that sense, you could argue that uh, that um, you could you could take it away without any consequence. I think, though, when you when you, you strip this back and, and really look at it in some depth, it reminds me of a piece which Mary Jezeski wrote. Um, she's also a contributor to Monaco, and she said that part of the problem is that yes, we we had these incredible expectations from Aung San Suu Kyi because. Over the years of her confinement, we placed her on a pedestal. She was up there with the saints. And of course, we expected her to react in a saintly way. And she didn't. The other mistake that we made is that her father was once the leader of of, of Myanmar or Burma, as it was in those days. He was a nationalist. And that nationalism is in her DNA. It wasn't going to go away when she went to Oxford University, got a Western education, married an Oxford academic. And... In a sense, it gets us to, to, sort of, to reappraise the later decisions that she made when she went to Myanmar because we lauded her when she was offered the option of actually leaving the country to, to be at her husband's bedside when he was dying from cancer. She refused to go. She stayed because she didn't want to, she didn't want to leave her home because she knew that if she, if she left, she wouldn't be allowed back in. So she stayed. We, we admired that stoicism and it is admirable. But the pa- the point is, is that we placed her on a pedestal and she hasn't lived up to our expectations. So the fall hasn't been gentle. It's been quite shocking, actually, because of what we wanted from her. And really, before things started to unravel, giving her a Nobel Prize, that was the icing on the cake. That was the halo moment. So the halo is tarnished without having to take take it take it away. I mean, one would hope that in her own conscience she would turn around and say, look, given the way that I am viewed and that she's actually been stripped of some of her other honours, maybe I should just hand this in quietly. The question, of course, is would the Nobel Committee accept it? I mean, the thing is, I guess, Peter, that all the big awards, uh, if you think of things like Nobel Prizes or even if you think of things like Oscars or Grammys, they do put a person on a pedestal. Um, my concern would be if you went around retrospectively removing them from people for good work they made may have done up to that point mm-hmm. uh, is where do you stop with that? If if somebody wins an Oscar and then goes on to do something else dreadful in their personal or private life or even just makes a terribly bad movie, I guess would be the equivalent, hmm. um, do, do you then start retrospectively removing things that people may have earned uh, quite properly? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think we're going to sit here on the spot and come up with the principles that, that should apply and uh, you, you can understand why there is no mechanism, therefore, to take away a, a Nobel Prize. I mean, what do you do even with a figure like Mandela, who clearly was a tremendous force for liberation uh, and 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 uh, and rescued uh, the majority uh, black uh, population of South Africa from from apartheid? And yet, you know, what do we make of the legacy? Given that he didn't do land reform, and now the economic apartheid continues, is that his fault? Is I mean, I, I'm I'm intentionally being provocative and of course there's there's no comparison to that and uh, implicitly blessing uh, what certainly looks like uh, a kind of genocide that's that's playing out uh, in, in in Burma or Myanmar as, 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 as we now call it uh, but it's it, it's a very difficult thing to go back 
uh, historically and sort of separate out, uh, as, as, as you say, uh, the, the, the good deeds of, of, of someone's career from, from the eventual legacy. Mm. And that's the point that the Nobel Committee has made. They're not saying that we actually in, endorse her position over the persecution of the Rohingya. Before this happened, it was, it was the fact that she resisted. And it was almost like the sort of resistance that we saw from Mahatma Gandhi, that you, you, you basically take the, the blows from your enemy, but uh, you, you fight back with your dignity. Well, that's exactly right, because in 1991, it seemed like a perfectly fair shout, didn't it? I don't recall anybody in 1991 going, no, this is a travesty, this is dreadful, mm. she must not receive this award. Absolutely, absolutely. So she we, we, you know, she was awarded for her dignity, and the fact that it was very inspirational that maybe some of her fellow countrymen who were buckling under the oppressiveness from the military may have actually wanted to throw in the towel, but they took their cue from her. So that that is an honourable achievement, but unfortunately, yes, it has been sullied by her non-action uh, with the Rohingya and uh, the fact that uh, she herself has been spinning on behalf of, of the military, the fact that she's, she's, she's done a Trump. It's fake news. This is fake, fake rapes. And there was a particular expression that she used about icebergs of misinformation. And these are things which will tar her forever. It will tar her legacy, which is a great pity. But uh, what she could do, of course, is simply resign. If she had actually resigned from this de facto leadership position, then that would have been a very powerful statement in itself. But she chose not to. Okay, well, finally, uh, this evening to Taipei, where Premier William Lai has announced the intention of next year making English an official language of Taiwan. It would make national an initiative he pioneered as mayor of Tainan, aimed at promoting multilingualism and therefore Taiwan's competitiveness. Competitiveness? Who would put that word in a radio script? <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying. That is. I a thought sh- you wrote that script. I, well, indeed. Uh, that, that, that is a shocker. Uh, you know what I'm saying. Um Stories like this always make me somewhat embarrassed. I grew up on an English-speaking island, um, that being Australia, and like most English-speaking islands, it's very, very uh, sluggardly about uh, encouraging its its children to speak Eng- other languages. Uh, I meant, I think we speak English reasonably, but but in, but language education in Australia is poor, um, and it shouldn't be. Australian kids from the age of five should be learning to speak Indonesian, Malay, Korean, Vietnamese, Chinese, Japanese, uh, indeed Aboriginal languages. I think, but none of it uh, uh, actually seems to get done. I think, Peter, do we just assume as English-speaking people, I know you speak Chinese, uh, mm-hmm. but do we just generally assume as English-speaking people that if we just go out into the world and yell at people in English, they'll understand us? <laughs> well, I mean, we kind of won the lottery uh, if well, we were born so. in an English-speaking country and we got to learn what is clearly the international language without any effort. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, that does give us a kind of parochialism that's challenging. I think uh, certainly in the U.S., where I grew up, uh, there there's been an assumption in 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 white America that uh, everyone else is supposed to learn English, and if they don't. Uh, you know, worse than us simply being parochial and limited, we even judge the people who don't who don't speak English and 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 question their intelligence, uh, and that's uh, that's damaging, limiting. It, it prevents us from from understanding the world. Uh, in in this case, though, in the Taiwan context, it's an interesting move because uh, Taiwan is, of course, constantly grappling with its relationship with mainland China. And uh, there's been, uh, long before this uh, drive to learn English, uh, this question about whether uh, the national language should be Mandarin, which is the national language on the mainland, or whether uh, the Taiwanese language, the Taiwanese dialect should be emphasized more. And this is a way 
by the Democratic Progressive Party of, of stepping out of the traditional Taiwan versus China question, but still going off to its own mm-hmm. thing, taking Taiwan out of the orbit, out of the orbit of, of mainland China and, and pursuing a de facto form of independence. Is, is that how you see it, Juliet? Obviously, language is a hugely important component of national identity. Is this Taiwan trying to create or trying to uh, reinforce a national identity which is not quite like mainland Chinese? Oh, I totally agree with that because you know, this, the reporting of this story has simply been Taiwan wants to have English as the second language, but they don't quite get the connotations on that, or, or perhaps people do get the connotations, but the reporters have decided for pragmatic reasons not to actually focus on You would on get this. a lot of angry emails. You, possibly, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. Fake news, fake news, fake news. But I mean, look, we, we know that uh, Taiwan has always had this, um, shall we say... Um, Rumbustious relationship with with China, and um, certainly in terms of the way that um, China refers to to Taiwan and the way that the West refers to it. But I mean, yes, this is one way of perhaps Taiwan striking out and um, asserting asserting its strength, its independence, its own authority, shall we say? I mean, just as a, 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 I guess a final thought on this, Peter, from the the point of view of of languages, you you were talking there about how English has become as close to a global language as we have. Sure. Are, are we going to reach a point at which learning other languages actually does become less necessary? Uh, potentially. I mean, I think we are, those of us who grew up as native English speakers, I think, are, are already aware that it's not really our language anymore. I mean, if a Korean person goes to Germany, uh, they're speaking in English. And mm-hmm. that's, and the, the form of English they're using is, uh, is kind of malleable and negotiated and may or may not be grammatical or syntactical according to the textbook, but it's a form of communication. And there are actually more people speaking that, that kind of English than there are uh, speaking the formal kind that we mm-hmm. grew up learning in Queen's in, English. In Native English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just very finally, very briefly, Juliet, what, what do you think? Is, is, are we getting to that point or will there always be a valuable a value to learning other languages because if you can speak in another language you can think in another language as well. I think there is a value to learning another language. I mean, One of my big regrets was that I was taught French from about the age of eight or nine and the emphasis was on writing it and that's fine but you know you talk to people and there was and learning was well, learning to speak French. It's something which I had to acquire later on. I don't speak it fluently, but this is my problem because my brain's divided. It looks at the printed word rather than the spoken. So yeah, we need to learn more languages if we're to be part of this connected world. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Juliet Foster and Peter Goodman, thank you both for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Carlotta Rabello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Anna Savetska. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's the Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. There's more on the day main stories on the daily at 2200 i'm back with midori house at the same time tomorrow 1800 london for now i'm andrew muller thank you for listening